uh, I thought I'd start with an experience that happened with uh, me in college. Um, the college that my wife and I met um, had chapel three times a week, which we were required to go and actually sign in. So we, you know, it's like church. You worship and listen to, to guys preach and teach. And, and uh, we had uh, exposure to a lot of great preachers, a lot of great teachers. And uh, one time in particular, though, I'll never forget, and that is uh, we had this very, very well-known uh, Bible teacher, very respected, and I'm not going to name him. Um, he uh, came up on the platform, and, and he declared that it was going to be open mic Sunday. On Sunday, open mic chapel. Um, you can tell how I think. Um, open mic chapel, which means you can ask him anything you want. Now, either that's an excuse for laziness because he didn't prepare something, or um, it's a very brave move, move because, uh, you know, students can ask absolutely anything. So the students of the college, and granted, not all of them are theology students. Uh, some of them are home ec and other youth ministry, and others are math and science. And anyway, they came up and they asked their questions. But most of them were pretty, pretty practical and what I consider kind of a softball questions, you know, like, so what do you do um, in your quiet time, and or how do you study the scripture, stuff like that. And then, and I'll never forget this, um, uh, a friend of mine, a fellow theology student, a uh, real sharp guy, uh, walked up to the mic, and he's a real serious kind of fellow, you know, and, and he opens the Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29. And he reads the text. Now, I'm going to read it for you. Um, it's behind me, and I'll tell you where we're going with this, if I can get it to move. There we go. He reads this. He says, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, which is, you know, not engaged, that first step of marriage in the ancient people's lives, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who, uh, who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver. That's the dowry. And she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. And after he finishes reading, you know, he asks the well-respected Bible teacher, he says, so, um, based upon what this says here, that if a guy sleeps with a virgin, then he is, according to this, bound to marry her and never divorce her. And, um, And then he looked at this, Bible teacher and said, are we bound to this truth? And I'll tell you, that right there was a loaded question, a massively loaded question, not just theologically, but emotionally. And, uh, and the well-known, well-respected Bible teacher thought about it for a second, and he responded, and he said, for all practical purposes, Yes. Well, the following week in the biblical studies department, there was this flurry of activity as students went in for counseling to the different Bible professors because a lot of them, either pre-conversion or maybe even in their converted state, they made mistakes and they had relations with people they shouldn't have outside of marriage. And, and, uh, and so they were coming in going, well, so am I bound? And back in junior, in high school, Um, am I bound then by what this says to go back and marry the girl and never divorce the girl? So there's all these confused, scared, fearful people as to what exactly they're supposed to do. And it raises a a, a massively important question over over which there's much confusion in the church. I think even in here, as I'm exposed to different people's thinking, I think it's a point of confusion. Can we take like an Old Testament law like this one? regarding the uh, uh, relations with a virgin? And can we directly 
bring it down on the New Testament believer's life. Or if you're a parent trying to, you know, deal with your children who want to dress weird, and, uh, and you think to yourself, hey, I got an idea. You flip open to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 4, where you say, hey, look what the Bible says. Women are not supposed to wear men's clothes, and men are not supposed to wear women's clothes. And so therefore, you shouldn't wear pants, you should wear a dress. And by the way, guys, you shouldn't wear pink. Can you, this by the way is not pink, this is, this is, this is salmon, it is a, it is a masculine color. <laughs> that's, that's, but see, that's, that, that's a question. Can you just simply take the Ten Commandments and just place them down on a New Testament believer's life without thinking through how does the Old Testament law relate to the New Testament Christian? It's a massive question. And I think, as I said, I think there's much confusion. And, and I believe that Paul answers that question and more than that in this particular section where he's going to compare two covenants. Okay? Covenants, contracts that God laid out in the Old Testament. One to Abraham. Just track with me here. I'm only doing two covenants here. So just Abraham and Moses. Abraham lived roughly 2,000 years before Jesus, 430 years according to Paul before Moses. So God makes a covenant with Abraham, a covenant of promise around the year 2000 BC. And then he comes along uh, 430 years later and makes a covenant with Moses called the covenant of law. And Paul in this section here is going to Compare and contrast the covenant of promise made to Abraham to the covenant of law made with Moses. And so there, show there is a massive difference, and one clearly gains priority and is the one that gives us hope. So that's what we're going to do because that's what he does. And I, and I pray and hope that, you know, it'll one feed your understanding as to how to put the Bible together because in, in, in some short verses, he is basically going to show how God structured history, all right, and how we shouldn't. Um, impose those structures in an inappropriate way. So here is, um, is what Paul writes regarding the covenant of promise. Beginning in verse 15, we read, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, that is plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now just... a. To draw out a couple of points here, and hopefully not confuse anyone, um, one is Paul's drawing on, a, on a, an analogy from the law system of his day, and he probably is referring to a contract as in a will, because he mentions the word inheritance down in verse 18. And even in our day, if, if, if someone puts in place a will and that person dies, well, it's very, very difficult to annul, change, or void it. Um, and certainly even more so, it would seem, in Paul's day is that once this covenantal contract of will is made and the person dies, you can't void it, you can't change it, you can't amend it. That is, it endures. Uh, It's unchangeable. 
And then Paul goes from that, that, that law analogy and he draws um, the analogy to the promise that God made to Abraham. He's like, listen, God made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham 430 years before. And that means that that promise, that covenant stands. It stands without change, without emendation, and without, um, without being voided out whatsoever. So, in other words, it's preserved in its entirety and in its integrity. The law which came later is not going to do anything to counter it. And that's his, that's his point. It's permanent. It's, it stands as is. The next little piece that he draws out is that that focus of this particular covenant promise is Abraham, and in particular, a singular offspring. You notice he makes his little point, and not to say offsprings, but offspring singular, and then he says that refers ultimately to Jesus. Just to clarify the word offspring, both in English as well as Hebrew and Greek, can all refer to a collective, as in many, or a singular. And we can speak of somebody having offspring, and it can mean one or many. It's like sheep. You know, you can look and say, hey, look at the black sheep, and you're talking about one. Or, hey, look at the sheep, and you see a whole bunch on a hill. It can mean either one. Which means Paul's not drawing his argument that it ultimately leads us to Jesus from the definition alone. But rather, if you, if you kind of study the Old Testament from the very beginning, you realize there's this tendency, this proclivity, this pattern of, of focusing in on the one offspring. Um, Genesis chapter 3, when God comes to curse the serpent and says that an offspring of the woman is going to arise and he, singular, is going to crush your head. Or when Cain blows it and murders his brother Abel, um, God looks for another offspring, singular, and chooses Seth. Uh, even in the case of Abraham, when God said, you're going to have a son through Sarah, the, the son of promise, the son of blessing. Well, you know, Abraham has a couple sons. He has Ishmael and he has Isaac. But the blessing and therefore the promise is extended to the one. And I think Paul is, is picking up on this tendency for the promise to reduce down to one and says there is only one to whom ultimately this promise refers. And that is the only rightful person who deserves that promise, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, this, this covenant um, finds its ultimate recipient and fulfillment, and therefore the one through whom it could come to others in the person of Jesus. He focuses it on Jesus. So here you have, he's just laying out this idea of covenant of promise that it is unalterable, it's unchanging, it's permanent, and it points ultimately um, to Jesus. And I think what, what that, if I was to sum up his point, it would be simply this. that The covenant of promise is superior. Now, I haven't shown why it's superior, but I will in a moment because he's going to actually say that the law covenant was temporal, whereas this one's permanent. That's why it's superior. Covenant of promise is superior, enduring, and made possible only through Christ Jesus, or through Jesus Christ. Now, just for the sake of your heart, I want to take you back to Genesis 15, and just endure me for a moment, because there's this powerful, vivid, graphic image that gives you the sense of the power of God's promise. Abraham is, is, as I've said on uh, previous occasions, Abraham is the recipient of these amazing, um, globally significant promises of God, which are just an echo that God would one day restore all things beyond what they originally were in the state of perfection. 
And he pr- makes these promises to Abraham in, in chapter 15 and the surrounding chapters. And, and Abraham's like response, and, and he says, how do I know? And I, I think that's Abraham's way of saying, Lord, can I get that in writing, you know? Can I get your promises in, in writing, something a little bit more uh, indelible and permanent? And so this is what the Lord does. First, in verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord, named for Yahweh, who brought you from, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That's part of the promise, a home. By the way, the promise of God's blessing basically is summed up in three things. That is a restoration of the presence of God, um, the formation of the people of God, living in the place of God, which ultimately finds its way, its, its fulfillment in Revelation 21 and 22, where God dwells amongst his people in the new creation. Side note done. Verse 8 says, But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? That's his way of saying, Can I have it in writing? Verse 9, He said to him, This is the Lord speaking, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So here's all these animals he's asking for. And verse 10, And he, he brought them all these, cut them in half. Now it doesn't say that the Lord required him to cut it, but I think that's exactly what he said, is cut them in half. So he cuts these animals in half and laid each half over and against each other. So you have these, I mean, it's kind of gruesome, you know, these halves of animals laying against each other or uh, uh, on two sides. And we're not really familiar with that in the 21st century. It sounds gruesome, and animal right, rights activists would have had a conniption if we do that. But that's what, that's what he does, and it's part of a ritual of the day of, 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 um, of sealing and ratifying or sign, seal, deliver the co- a covenant in which when you were going to make a serious covenant with somebody, you would take an animal and you would split the animal in two, and then you would make your contract, and the both of you, to seal this contract, would walk between the two pieces of meat as a way of saying, may this happen to us and more if we do not keep our contract. Imagine doing that today when you sign your mortgage papers. You know, bank lender and, and a buyer together with two pieces of a cow and both people walk between saying, if this happened to us and more if we refuse either, you don't give me the house or I don't give you your payments. Wow, that would be something else. That's what's happening. God is arranging for this signing on the dotted line for this covenant promise of all I'm going to give you. What's amazing is at the end of this little segment, this is what we read, verse 17. Just let your heart feel this. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Uh, fire and flame are, are um, images of, of God throughout the Bible. That is, 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 these are symbols of God's presence. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I mean, this is, I like to think this is as he's passing between these pieces. To your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Normally, two parties walk between these pieces of animal. In this text, it's God's presence alone. That is, God is saying, may this happen to me. If I do not fulfill all of the promises that I have made to you. And walks through it alone. He's making a unilateral promise. Abraham is not walking through with the Lord. 
That means that the full burden and responsibility fulfilling everything he's promised weighs heavily and ultimately and, and exhaustively on the shoulders of God himself. He will come through. That's an amazing sign on the dotted line. You can't get more graphic, you can't get more vivid, you can't get more indelible than that. The Lord's passed between them. That means God's going to be the worker of it. He's going to be the fulfiller of it. He's the guarantee that it's going to take place. And God, at this point, doesn't require anything of Abraham except one thing. And that is, the only thing you can do with the promise is believe it. It's all you can do. And receive it. You know, if I have an uncle, Uncle Jack, Uncle Fred, who leaves me 10000 bucks because he promised it in a will and it's, it's legally binding, you know, I, I get it if I believe it and I show up to receive it. No work on my part. And that's the point. And that's, that's the promise made to Abraham. And, and the implication, just two of those things, just to keep in mind of, of why that is such an amazing promise. And this is, the, this is I think, the, whole, the hope of the whole Testament, is that God bears the weight of working and fulfilling his promise. He bears the weight. He's the worker. And our part, Abraham's part, is to believe. And you can tell where Paul's going. He's arguing that we're saved on the basis of our faith, just like Abraham Because of the promise. Covenant of promise is superior, enduring, and made possible only through Jesus Christ. All right? That's that's one promise, one covenant. And Paul's going to say this is our hope. It points us to Jesus and its fulfillment in Jesus, and it's what gives us um, the blessing of God in and only through Jesus. Now, let's transition for. Oh, no, let's, let's make this a time. Let's fast forward 430 years after this amazing promise where God walks through the flesh and, and blood um, to the covenant law of Moses. Now, you can read in a lot of different portions of the law of Moses and Exodus through Deuteronomy. You know, it's four entire books that code how you're supposed to live with all of its laws and regulations from every, over everything, what you wear to how you plant and how you treat people, all that stuff. And this is what is said. Now notice there's a massive difference. Verse 15. I'm backing up to Leviticus before we get to Galatians and Paul's comment on it. He says, if you spurn my statutes and if you, uh, your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do my commandments but break my covenant, this is covenant of law now, then and all kind of bad stuff happens. I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever, and consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. It's an entirely different kind of covenant. This one, God says, I promise to do this. This is my part. And God's people agree to do their part. That is, they are going to go ahead and live by and submit to and obey the regulations, the statutes, the rules of the covenant of law. And the idea being, and by the way, there was blood and animals sacrificed there too. Again, the idea of may this happen to us more if, if we break our covenant with you. 
Only this is two parties instead of God himself walking just through the blood alone. And as you know, like from the time that the law came before it was even brought down the mountain, the people were breaking it. And the vast majority of Old Testament history, from Exodus all the way to Malachi, from Moses to Jesus, is one monumental exercise, example, and illustration of failure to keep this covenant. Discipline after discipline, judgment after judgment, it is a huge monumental lesson on the simple fact that they cannot perform this covenant. You again think about the contrast. The covenant of promise, God is the worker. God is the one who will fulfill, and God is the one who, who uh, we must trust. And, and this one rests on the performance of God's people to do and live up to that covenant. Very, very, very different. Very different. And so the question that, that most of us would ask is, is like, so, so what in the world, why would God put the law in place? Like, what was he thinking? Like, it made his people fail. Like, he's going to stick with the promise thing. And that's Paul's, um, what he gets you right here. He just anticipates that's what we'd, we'd ask. He says, why then the law? Like, why, what's God's purpose? He says it was added because of transgressions. And it, it's not like it was added uh, because it would keep people from transgressions. Actually, compare this to Romans. It's actually to substantiate and to even increase transgressions. Give people an actual, um, what do you want to call this? Beyond questionable truth that they're transgressors. It's because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, now this part's kind of complex. I'll sum it in a second. But now an intermediary uh, implies more than one, but God is one. Is then the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. He says they're actually not contrary. They actually are complementary. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise... So that the promise by faith in Christ, Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So to summarize really quick here what he's saying. He's saying, one, the law covenant's inferior, in part because it was mediated by angels. He and Stephen and Acts both argue this, that it was put in place by mediaries, whereas God's promise to Abraham was direct. So in that sense, it's inferior. It's also inferior because it's looked upon as temporal. You look at how many times the word until is used. In other words, this time of law is not forever. It was added because of transgressions until... The offspring should come. That is until Christ comes. Or down in verse 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until. There's a time coming when it's not going to be, it's not going to have jurisdiction over my people anymore. It's got, time is going to have come and passed. 
And then the last one here in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So it is looked upon as this kind of temporal inclusion between the promise given and the promise fulfilled in Jesus. Sorry. Okay, mental picture here. That Paul is describing this season of law as in temporary insertion, almost a parenthesis between the promise given to, the, to Abraham and the promise realized in Jesus. <laughs> Side note, if you want to look for a real parenthesis in God's history, I don't think it's the church age. It's actually the age of law. Dispensationalists can hack on that for a few minutes. But that's, that's how he's viewing it. It's a time that's come and it's gone. It's temporary until, until Christ comes and then another season is going to start. So, um, it is inferior, it's temporary, and then that first statement, it was added because of transgressions. It was given a function, a painful but loving function, and that is, it was given the function to show us our absolute need and to bring us to the end of ourselves. That's kind of a, a sum of, of, of what he teaches here, the, Covenant of law is inferior. It's temporary. Designed to show us our sin and our need. Two covenants. Covenant of promise and a covenant of law. One's permanent, abiding, and um, focuses on Christ and fulfillment in Christ to all who believe. The other being inferior and temporary and designed to show us our, our desperate need that we can't do it. We can't change our relationship with the Lord and put ourselves back in sync with Him. We can't fix our own souls. We can't fix our relationships ultimately with each other or the world in which we live. Um, That's what the law was intended for. I mean, a 1,400-year period to teach us that truth. That's how important it was. And I think that just goes to show how stubborn and dim-witted we are that it takes 400 1,400 years to actually get that point. This goes to show we oftentimes don't really conceive of just how sinful the human heart is. And so God said, I'm going to give you this massive lesson of 1,400 years just to show you that it doesn't work on your own power. Now, those two truths, those two covenants contrasted. Um, Let me just then um, offer a couple implications or reflections on like what that means for you and I practically, the second part regarding the law covenant. I, I think one of the things it means, if this is true, it's inferior and temporary, is that one, we cannot apply covenant law directly to the Christian. When your 15-year-old comes up to you and says, Mommy, I want to get a tattoo. And you're thinking to yourself, Ugh. Resist the temptation to turn to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28 to justify a rule that you have set up in your household for what you believe is for the well-being of your child. Now, if you happen to be one of those parents who are like, yeah, sure, get a tattoo, that's on you, that's fine. I guess what I'm getting at is, is let's not misuse Scripture to justify our position. It's in particular, misuse the Old Testament and try to somehow pull it out and apply it directly. You know, God has given us plenty of latitude as parents 
to come up with rules that don't need biblical justification. You don't find the curfew anywhere in Scripture. You don't find um, homework time and the necessity to actually do your algebra in Scripture. God has given latitude to use parents to say, no, you're not getting one while you're in my house. When you're 18, you can have one. That's fine, because you're an adult. God's given you latitude without you having to misuse Scripture to do that. So simply put, you just can't use the covenant law um, directly. And that, notice directly. I'm not, not saying it doesn't apply. It only applies as filtered through the gospel and new covenant. That's a, a new era has come when Jesus came. A time of freedom, a time of the Spirit, a, t- a time in which, which um, our relationship with God would be some f- from the inside out and not from the outside in, from, from the Spirit's work in the heart and not because of things written on stone. So a new time has come. We're living in a time of promise. We're living in the time of the fulfillment of that promise. And, and all God asks of us in this particular season in which we live, which is the season of promise and fulfillment, is that you trust my promise. You trust what I've provided in Jesus Christ. Um, that, that's it. Another one is, is really kind of more to his point, and that is that power ultimately is not found in moral instruction. Now this, the law of Moses is brilliant. I mean, in the ancient world, it was, it was far be, before its time. It was so illuminating, so insightful, so enlightened. That law of Moses is full of information. It's full of uh, minute instruction. I mean, if you wanted a practical manual as to how do you live your life, it's right there. But simply having a practical manual of how to live your life doesn't give you the power to live it that way. And yet there is still, I think, within the Christian heart, an assumption that if I can just find the key ingredient or the key piece of knowledge or the key piece of wisdom that will unlock what I'm having a hard time with, well, then I'm going to grow. And then I'm going to experience utopia in my heart. And and I, I think it's proceeding on the assumption that if we just have the right information, listen, let me just tell you right now, they had the right information and it still didn't work. The power is not found in law-like instruction or moral instruction. The power is found ultimately in the gospel itself and in the power of Christ and faith in the promise of God who bears the weight on his own shoulders of making his promise come to fruition in your life. That's where it comes from. And one final implication, and this, this isn't explicit to the text. This is just a reflection on how God's worked in history, okay? So there's a bit of um, reflection needed for this one. I was just thinking about, okay, God, you, like, you, you put 1,400-year period of this law to teach your people and to teach all of us that, that we can't do it ourselves, to bring us to a place where we, we're driven to grace, that's the, what the law is supposed to do. Drive us to grace. It seems to me that if, if God did that in, on a macro level in the people of Israel's life to teach them and through them us that we can't do it, it seems to me stands to reason that, that God would also do that on a micro level providentially in the things that he would bring into our lives. And it's, uh, to say that, you know, the, the, the perennial temptation of each of us is to 
is to, how do I say this? Uh, is to think that we have the power to, to do things or change ourselves or whatever. It's just a perennial temptation for us to do. Um, and if God did on a macro level um, to bring his people to the end themselves, uh, doesn't it stand to reason he'd also bring some things, impossible things into our lives when we face that struggle of, of wanting to uh, trust in ourselves and our own power of bringing things that are absolutely impossible that bring us to the end of ourselves? You're, you, you get the, the, the parallel? Like God in his love did that to Israel? Would God in his love bring an impossible situation? A deeply rooted sin that you're just like, how do I get rid of this thing? Or a, the, the, the wayward heart of a spouse that you can't be able to change despite the pleadings and pleadings and pleadings. Or the rebellious heart of a child that you've worked hard with over and over and over again with and there is no change. May I suggest to you that it's not an accident? And it's not all about them. But God has placed that impossible situation in your life also for you to bring you to a place where you come to realize what the law of Moses was intended to do. That is just to say, wow, I guess I really can't do this. There are people in this room in the middle of some rather difficult turmoil because of an impossible situation that you don't know how to deal with. And you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried. It's not an accident that that's in your life. And I think one of the redeeming purposes for that being in your life and things in my life is to bring us to our knees and drive us to the grace of God. So in in that situation, you know, are you just continuing to fight and fail in the flesh? Or are you dropping to your knees and saying, all right, Lord, like, really, this is you. I cannot do this. And rather than, rather than try and try and try, I'm going to trust him who promised, and I'm going to trust your shoulders are broad enough to deal with this. So you two covenants. Covenant of promise, covenant of law. You realize both lead us to Jesus in different ways. Covenant of promise points us to God's provision because God is good. Covenant of law shows us our absolute need for Jesus because we can't save ourselves. Only he himself can do it. Let me uh, end on a, just a positive note. You learn the darndest things from your children, right? We had this little boy living in our house for, uh, for a number of months. and um, my, my youngest son called him his uh, half-adopted brother. He's a little African-American kid. It's funny to watch them together, black and white together, you know, calling themselves half-brothers and going to school together. Um, he didn't come from a context that had a lot. And so we're out, out back playing catch with baseball, and, and um, he catches 15 in a row, this little guy. And I was just like, all right, I got to do something nice. I just wanted to reward him, you know. I said, hey, listen, I'll buy you a candy bar. His eyes got huge as saucers. I don't know. He said, really? And I said, yeah, I will. And I said, I promise. If you don't plan on following through, never use those words. Uh, and he says, oh, and he's just getting super excited. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, I said, listen, we're not going to get it now, though. You know, that's a good thing. Is you, can, you don't put time parameters on it, then it's open-ended. And uh, 
So each day he'd come home, uh, Isaac and his little friend, and, and this little friend would say, did you get me the, the candy bar? And I said, nope, but I, I'll make good on my promise. He probably did this for a week. Wore me down, you know. No, finally, I, uh, but you know, the thing is, is he never let go of that. Never let go of the promise. And I just saw something in the tenacious holding on to this promise about a candy bar. And, and finally, I, I went to Rayleigh's and I bought him the biggest musketeer bar I could find, big enough to choke a St. Bernard. And, and I brought it home and I, I said, hey, buddy, here you are. And it was just one of those moments where he just took it. He was just joyful. And, and uh, what, what, what spoke to me is that he just never gave up. And the, the fact of the matter is, listen, our father... God himself, the almighty, the uncreated one, he walked through blood and flesh by himself. And ironically enough, he would experience blood and flesh torn himself, not because he failed to keep his promise but in order to keep his promise. And he walked through it alone to say, it's absolutely guaranteed. And to live with that constant, perpetual, I'm looking to the promise, and I'm looking to the promise of what Jesus has bought me because you promised, and know you walk through that flesh alone to say, I, myself, bear the burden of making good on my promise to you. That, my friends is where you and I need to continue to live in this simple truth that our Father said, I promised, walked through the blood and guaranteed uh, by his own word and by his own indelibly written contract that it was true for all who believe. Just live in that hope, you know? Live in that hope. That's where we're supposed to live. And I, I pray this this will help you understand a little bit more of how the Bible is put together and also show you that hope comes through Abraham and through Jesus and not um, by trying to keep the law of Moses. Amen. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your wisdom and for your grace. We ask you to continue to bless our understanding of your truth and thank you so much for the fact that you, you paid for our our sins and you made possible the promise uh, through Christ and Christ alone. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to live in that light. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, would you please stand and join us?